it's actually Salon 42 now. No, I'm pretty sure we did 42, didn't we? No, I, I think mean, you we keep did... track, so I could be wrong. It could be. I think 42. we did 41, and then it was like, okay, the the next one is 42, so we better know what we're doing. Um... Is that can we kit? Is that for the title right there? <laughs> it's time for the Access of Easy podcast. Yeah, I, you know, quick with the trigger because the chances, the so many times we've had amazing conversations before recording and after recording, I kind of feel our policy should be that as soon as we connect, the show starts and it goes <laughs> until we disconnect because otherwise there's just gold that is, uh, you know, re re really should be handled. So, Charles. Much of it comedic. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Charles, what would you like to talk about today? Well, I'd like to talk about your um, essay on um, is system change uh, likely or possible or inevitable? <laughs> right on. Mark? Well, I sent out that email on my topics and I realized that the one big thing I've been sort of following this month that I didn't put in that email was central bank digital currencies are kind of coming to the fore now. And a lot of my predictions around those are coming to pass, like expiry dates on digital cash and things like that. Well, and we uh, in that email thread, you know, you sort of brought up the Facebook currency and how Facebook has this like zombie currency that everybody thinks is dead. But in fact, is more like the undead because it will never die uh, insofar Facebook isn't going to die. And. You know, my essay on inevitable systems change was also tied to this idea that governments are developing a diplomatic core just to deal with digital platforms that they are having, whether it's the State Department in the United States or, you know, whether it's the Foreign Service in Britain, they're developing expertise to negotiate directly with the technology giants, which fits our kind of network state metaphor. And it made me kind of wonder if, you know, if a diplomatic corps is a necessary prerequisite to interstate negotiations. And again, it feels like it's getting into the cyberpunk world that we often argue is already here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. But on a selfish level, I kind of want to talk to you guys about inflation only because it feels as if society is now acknowledging that we're in an inflationary period. And so I'm curious to kind of explore uh, uh, what that means and what the consequences are. You know, I sent out that Grant Williams newsletter um, because he spends the whole 22 pages exploring that inflation versus deflation dynamic. Uh, I think it's called Amen Corner was the title of this month's edition. And there are still people who are deflationists out of all this, people who are super intelligent people like Lacey Hunt and uh, well, Russell Napier has flipped to inflation, but I, I started to understand the difference between, sorry, I started to understand the difference between um, why the deflationists say that the state that's happened up until now was not inflationary. Because, but now that we're going into a fiscal inflation, a fiscal stimulus 
regime that that is more inflationary. But I mean, again, even Grant Williams in that thing was saying to Charles's point, we could have this deflationary shock or um, implosion that sort of sucks all the water out of the beach. And then people were standing around going, oh, look at all the pretty shells before the inflationary thing comes in. Yeah, well, I, I'm glad you're interested in this topic, Jesse, because um, it's it's one of those naughty problems for which there is no um, easy answer. Although, you know, everybody wants an easy answer because we're still running wetware 1.0, right? We want an easy answer. <clears throat> so to kind of just expand on, on what Mark uh, said about deflation and inflation, we can start by looking at what causes inflation. Okay, so we know that all the lumber mills shut down in the pandemic, right? Because demand for for building supplies dropped. And so then they started back up. And then because of this surge of people moving and deciding they wanted to change their lives, and there's this ma massive spike in demand for building materials. And suddenly they don't have enough workers. They don't have enough capacity. And so a sheet of plywood that cost $25 in the U.S. now costs 85 or 95 depending. And so it's like, well, that's going to kill a lot of building projects. So you get supply constraints, right? That's a, a, or shortages, right? From drought, floods, um, geopolitical, Suez Canal being blocked. I mean, there's a lot of different um, moving parts in that. But I think what's underestimated there is the dependence on really long, fragile, just-in-time global supply chains. In other words, you know, we only measure, we only manage what we measure, and we only optimize what we measure, right? And so the incentives in globalization are cut out everything, you know, strip it to the bone, baby. There's no duplicate factory for semiconductor liquids, you know, that you have to use to clean the plates, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, one supplier is fine because we can't afford any duplication, right? And and so there's no redundancy. And so this is what you get. Once the supply chains start breaking down, they've been optimized to, to such a level of perfection, there's no way to get it back up. And, you know, you go, how could semiconductors be in shortage? Are you are you freaking kidding me? Yeah, okay, we know it costs two to three billion to, to build a fab. But it's like all the suppliers of the equipment, right? Um, it, they've been around. It's like not like they didn't go out of business, but it well, takes I, it takes a long time to build a fab. And I think you hit it right in the nose, Charles. That it's the consequences of the the, the supply chain logic, the 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 on demand supply. Because certainly in the lumber area, it's because there's literally no warehouses right they used to have stores they used to have capacities those are gone right they priced those out of the market and the semiconductor piece is similarly interesting because part of the logic there is planned obsolescence right the yeah. reason the auto industry right. is so screwed is they use old semiconductors that the industry does not want to manufacture right now because demand for the new ones is so high that that's where they're making their margin. They're not going to make a lot of money building the old stuff with limited demand. So that means the auto industry either has to scrap its designs or use far more expensive technology, which increases the price of automobiles. So all of this is the cascading failure of the logic that went into the previous system of globalization. 
it's been disrupted. Now it's being reconfigured. And that's where I think it's interesting either to speculate or prepare for the consequences of how this plays out, which I want to come back to in the end, why Taiwan is so essential, so strategic to the production of these semiconductor chips, because that is why the geopolitical conflict of China versus America becomes, you know, really high stakes. Very good point. They're they're the foundry, you know, and of course, if you've ever, if you, the, the, you know, I actually had a friend who had a, uh, semiconductor um, uh, software, uh, you know, the kind of embedded um, software for power management. Uh, that was his company 20 years ago. So I ended up having to learn a little bit about the semiconductor industry. And yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a, a, the dominoes have to fall a very specific way to, to get the semiconductor built. And, and of course, as you say, there's lots of chips that are like a dollar, 50 cents, two bucks. They're, they're the chips that are in your your washing machine and dryer um, motherboard, you know, and, and, and so the auto industry uses a lot of that low um, low tech kind of chips. Right. And um, but of course, if you're going to go buy that motherboard, it's two hundred and fifty dollars. The, the, I know for a fact the semiconductor chips in that device are worth maybe 12 to 15 bucks total. <laughs> and the circuit board is five bucks, but there you go. That's the other part of the supply chain. You want a you want a, a motherboard for your um, Sears, uh, you know, dryer model seven three one five. Oh well, that's going to cost you two hundred fifty bucks because guess what? There are no alternative sources. No one in Mexico is going to make that. There's just not enough demand. It's not worth it. So you're going to pay what we what we ask, and that's another source of inflation, right? That comes with no redundancy limited supplies, etc. So, um, but now let's also me, talk, go ahead. I was going to say, it strikes me, Mark, we're talking about supply chain in terms of its brittleness, uh, both to disruption and pricing influences. But you've been talking about the hacking of software supply chains, which has its own kind of implications. Do you want to bring that in? Yeah, great I idea. Mean, the whole thing. I, I was just thinking while you guys were talking about that, I'm going to get to this, the supply chain thing in a sec. Um, I like normally don't, uh, over the course of my life, I didn't concern myself too much with geopolitical conflicts because I was a bit of an anarchist and I just, you know, had that whole philosophy about things. But what I see going on today with China really does frighten me because I think they're just I think they're playing a game of 3D chess and the West is playing, uh, you know, some combination of woke checkers, right? And we're just kind of <laughs> like hugging trees and eating granola and doing feeling stuff. And China is just ready to just say, come meet the new boss, right? And we, I started thinking about that because of what I see happening with Taiwan, China is flying more sorties with larger planes toward China every day. And there was a Dimitri Kafina's Hidden Forces episode with a, a China, a Sino um, geopolitical area expert saying, we don't know when they're going to do it, just someday they're going to do it. And one of the ways they're going to preamble it, maybe over the course of years, is they're just going to fly larger and larger sorties of planes over china until one day those planes just start dropping a bunch of bombs or just start an invasion because they're going to try and inculcate 
Taiwan into like, oh, here they come again, here they come again, here they come again, and then one day it's going to be game on. And sometimes I think that day is going to be sooner than later. And that does tie into the supply chain hack. I know, I know the solar winds was attributed to Russia and, and that whole chain of attribution makes me a little crazy because I sort of watched it unfold in real time from a single sentence article in Reuters that suddenly everybody was pointing at that article and then pointing at other articles that pointed at that article. It was like a Mobius strip of attribution that I just thought, okay, is this really, you know, it just seems, I'm not, I don't worry about China, about Russia. I worry about China and, and all of these supply chain hacks. A friend of mine says, you know, world war three's already started. Just nobody is, told anybody nobody has told the people yet that this is <laughs> that this is happening and world war three is being fought with very different weapons than world wars one and two which could possibly be a great a very good thing because there's a lot less bloodshed involved but these supply chain hacks are i get torn between thinking these are just normal hackers doing it for lols and these are very sophisticated nation state attacks because what's coming out of some of these supply chain attacks is how shitty the security is at some of these companies it's yeah the um well let's talk about china for a second um i i a friend of mine on the east coast of uh, of the u.s um had me join a, a conversation from a, a, a true Sinology, you know, a, a China expert, like a guy that spoke and read Mandarin and was an ex expert on the Chinese military public uh, documents. And so this guy was giving a lecture to uh, kind of a, you know, highly educated audience about uh, the China, Chinese military's view of Sun Tzu, right? The, the, the fame of art of war. And he said, you know, the art of war is well studied in American military academies as well, right? And, and the Chinese um, military uses a lot of, of the US um, uh, military features of the Afghan war and the Iraqi war as, 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 a, as uh, examples of, of Sun Tzu, right? In other words, everybody thinks the US is some sort of, you know, bloated, impossibly um, behind the times. And it's all like, well, actually, that's, that's that's a nice exaggeration, but it's not really the, the case that the, the Chinese are very aware, aware of the fact the U.S. has tremendous capacity uh, militarily still. And so but let's talk about China in another way. What, what struck me and I didn't make any comments, um, but, you know, I'm fairly familiar with China. And what struck me was how little all these well-educated middle class Americans knew about China, even the guys that that were in the military industrial complex, you know, they worked for defense contractors or, and, and it was all like, wow, these guys don't know Jack. I mean, they really don't They're, you know, and so it's all like, okay, well, that's a big gap. I mean, I would suspect that the state department and, and the Pentagon probably are the, have the best handle on China, not just as a threat, but as a culture, because you've really got to understand their history to uh, make an assessment of all that stuff. So, uh, but I want to make a, a throw out an idea here. China um, is now rich enough that it can have its own, establish its own parallel system, right? 
in, in its in, in in its entirety. In other words, an entire socio-economic political system that runs parallel to the West, interacts with the West, but is no longer dependent on the West. So you have a surveillance, uh, quasi-socialist um, economy and political structure, a very strong centralized hierarchy, and you've got supply chains um, and road and belt and you know all this stuff. And so it's all like, well, that's exactly what every country should do, right? Why be dependent on some other nation state, right? You want to be independent. And so it's like, well, oh, so we're supposed to deny them that? Like, oh, that's not, that's bad. That's wrong to get out from underneath the thumb of the United States. I mean, so competition is what's happening. And I think that's actually good. Now, I'm not saying that, that China attacking Taiwan is a good thing. No, it's not. Um, if they want to win Taiwan, they have to win the hearts and minds. Um, uh, but... Um, I think that, that China's existential threat to the West is actually a positive thing because the West better get off its um, hands and start creating a more open, more productive, you know, alternative to the Chinese system, right? And, I, and one last point I want to speak to is um, this idea of the nation state and, and network state. Well, China is making no bones about taking down Jack Ma and the Ant Group. There's, there's just like there's no network state that's going to compete with us. Now, to Jesse's point in previous shows, maybe China will become the first network state, but they're not allowing any private sector competition to be the network state. I think that's pretty clear. So, it, it, I mean, where I'll push back there is, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party likes to project prowess, likes to project control, likes to project dominance. But with all due respect, that's all that they are is projections. You know, th th there are network states who will challenge the Chinese government. But to your point, they may not be the domestic ones mm. because the domestic ones are ones that the Chinese government is still in a position to neutralize and control. And we don't yet know what's happened to Jack Ma. That's the other problem with, you know, those of us on the outside is that Chinese, uh, the Chinese government certainly is a kind of black box for all we know, Jack Ma and his fledgling network state may have pledged allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party and is working closely with them to ensure that the uh, capabilities developed by Blue Ant Financial and the ambitions of Jack Ma are aligned with the Chinese Politburo proper. Uh, you know, whether coercion played a big part in that is uh, perhaps a given. But we don't know is the point. And that is, yes, why I hypothesize not that China would be the first network state, but that China would be the first nation state to evolve into a network state uh, precisely out of a desire to maintain power, uh, precisely out of a desire uh, uh, to, 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 to grow as an empire, to... to to, to reach the kind of ambitions that we know Xi Jinping and, and many other leaders have. Uh, but with that said, I think that they're vulnerable. I think that all these governments are vulnerable, uh, in part because the Internet is of accelerating society. There's a velocity to the Internet that very few nation states are able to operate on that even network states like Facebook and Amazon have difficulty with. You know, but I've been toying with the idea, what if Amazon could be transformed into a distributed cooperative, 
right? If Amazon is just this big machine that's being optimized by its owners to not only produce a more effective uh, uh, cloud computing, a more effective warehouse, a more effective logistics system, uh, why couldn't someone else take control of that computer? Whether it's a nation state or, you know, whether it's outside forces. And by outside forces, uh, you know, let me be clear, I do not necessarily believe in a socialist conspiracy, although if there is one, please let me sign up. No, I, I, I mean more a cryptocurrency, right? Like I think if the, uh, to go to Mark's point about World War Three and, you know, Marshall McLuhan declared that war in the 60s, right? Marshall McLuhan in the 60s said that the information war is here. It is total. It is perpetual and it is without end. And and he's right. And, and it's the stakes are growing higher and higher, higher to Mark's point, because the cybersecurity practices of many industries and governments are shit and they're being exposed for it. But the moral of it all, really, fundamentally, when you think about it, is vulnerability. The vulnerability of the nation state, the vulnerability in this case of the network state and the ease by which it is to infiltrate and to uh, sabotage and to mess. And, and I'm not saying that because I like it. I'm saying that because it reflects the state of insecurity we're in. So to Mark's point, a coup d'etat in our contemporary terms is not based on uh, guns it's not based on seizing the post office and seizing the telephone office. I would argue that a coup d'etat is waged using cryptocurrency. Now, I'd say about nine years ago, maybe eight years ago, I mined Doge. And I mined quite a bit of Doge. And on somewhere that Doge sits on a hard drive, I know where not. Do I regret? <laughs> That I no longer have that doge? No, I don't regret because I don't have that doge because I don't want to be part of the doge revolution. Hey, the climb revolution, sign me up anytime. The doge revolution I knew was coming. That's why I mined that doge. But as a non-believer, I did not bother to maintain that wallet in any way that allowed me to redeem it today. And what does that say about the role of cryptocurrency in the future? That only the zealots will have their money to use and the rest of us, fuck, we just can't remember it for the life of us. <laughs> That's okay, funny. Mark, take it away. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, I don't. I, to Charles's point, I don't begrudge China from wanting to get out under Western hegemony. I don't begrudge anyone from wanting to get out and, and do it on their own where I get because it's a shift that has been playing out for a long time. And, and, you know, people like Catherine Austin Fitz were the first to sort of draw my attention to it, that we're, we're shifting from a unipolar world to a multipolar world. Right. For a while, it seemed like there were no challengers to the U S and now there are. And I think that's just the way of the world. If, if that dynamic can play out, if that shift can happen without what what's called, as per the book, the Thucydides trap, without the challenging power and the descending power or the waning power getting into a global conflict because the stakes are so much higher, that would be a good thing. And the book by that name, uh, I think, said that in the last 
2,000 years when that dynamic has played out 18 times. I think 12 of them resulted in a war. Six of them resulted in avoiding a war. So nothing's baked in stone. What worries me about the ascent of China, if China was just a, a, a culturally unique society pursuing their own agenda and rivaling or breaking away from the power of the, of the West or the U.S., so be it, fair point, whatever. But it's that state-dominated authoritarianism. It's that technocracy um, totalitarian regime with no civil liberties that doesn't threaten the West directly militarily. I'm not worried about waking up one day and there's PLA boots on the ground outside. I'm worried that all of our politicians here love the Chinese model and they want to implement China-style social credit and China-style um, capitalism with communist uh attributions or characteristics or whatever that phrase is here i just ha i just find this this um adoration of the chinese way of doing things I, I i i see even you know blue check twitter and media pundits and stuff like this sort of looking at well if china can do it why aren't we doing it it's like because we're not a totalitarian dictatorship that's why we're not doing it and for the ant group i mean that was that's horrific what happened there, that on the eve of, of, of an IPO, the CEO gives a speech that's critical of the CCP. All of a sudden, he disappears for a month. IPOs canceled. Now they're restructuring. They're being turned into a bank holding company underneath direct supervision of the Chinese central bank. Like, I mean, that's it, it's, it's almost the opposite extreme in China here in North America. We bitch and moan about the company store and Amazon and how they screw everyone but themselves and, and how Microsoft and Google and Facebook are kind of problematic in their own right. And so here, when, when, when representatives like uh, Wyden down in the States, who's actually making some interesting maneuvers against big tech, um, it's sort of like they can be justified or at least uh, um, they're not as, 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 as vividly nightmarish as the Chinese ones. It's this interesting dynamic that, that um, big tech seems to be victimized in China and they're the victimizers here in the West. And it's, it's just the role of the government. I guess it's some sort of spectrum, like maybe here in the West governments are trying to make something sensible out of it and in the west they're in china they're really trying not to lose power but at the end of the day i think that's what every government wants so what i fear is creeping china style authoritarianism throughout the entire world and um that's why i hope that a lot of these decentralized protocols and and uh you know decentralized network states make this clean break or this this uh they get that critical mass so that these governments can be throwing these laws around or making these uh, these pronouncements, and it really doesn't matter in the real world. Like Charles may not have been paying attention to it, but uh, Stephen Gilboult, Canada's heritage minister, I mean, what he's planning on coming out with in a couple of weeks for the internet censorship bill, time will tell when we see it, but the hints he's been dropping in the media, I mean, he's been he seems to be like watching China and saying, yeah, this is this is going to work.
I don't know if Jesse's frozen up completely or oh no Charles oh all right um well I think I, th I think you're quite right Mark that um, authoritarianism um, and centralized authoritarianism is is the um, enemy of personal liberty right that's and so I think we all are concerned about China's model being most attractive to other uh, central states um, in one form or another. But um, China has its own uh, challenges and vulnerabilities, to use uh, Jesse's very appropriate word. Um, one of them is, of course, demographic. They have a huge baby boom, which is retiring. They have a much smaller workforce behind it. And so they have the same problem as all the other um, developed countries. Um, and, and their policy is a lesser result of development. Uh, it, it's also the, the, one, or the one child policy on top of development. But so that's, a, that's an issue you don't over, overcome um, by um, you know, fancy footwork, right? You just don't have the workforce to generate the productivity and wealth to, to fund the retirement for 600 million people. So, and then they also have energy. So when I first went to China in 2000, um, I went to Shanghai and Suzhou and uh, you know, um, Hangzhou. There were no cars to speak of except a few official cars. And then um, the, uh, the Germans had handily uh, gained a monopoly on the taxi business in China. So there was some um, Volkswagen um, Santanas everywhere and then bicycles. And so now what's happened is there's now there's five ring roads filled with uh, traffic jams, right? So now China's this made the mistake, really, a, a, a strategic mistake of a fatal mistake, which was total dependency on hydrocarbons. That's they are just as dependent as anybody else. Yeah, I know they're building windmills and blah, blah, blah. But I we have friends who are in the windmill industry in China. And it's all like it's just like here or anywhere else. It's like two percent of their their power consumption. Right. You can build a thousand windmills a month and you're you're up to two point five percent. It's 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 a joke. Right. There's no way you're going to replace the reactors, too. Yeah. But you have to build one a week for the next 20 years. Yeah. It's like, so there's only 85 million barrels of, of oil available right now. I don't care how many will, wells you pump, wh where you search, dig the Arctic, whatever. All you're doing is replacing stuff that's depleted elsewhere. So China's got that dependency and, um, and we do too, right? And so what happens when there's only 70 million barrels or 60 million barrels, right? Well, that's a problem for the big tech network state too. You know why? Because their entire income stream is on discretionary spending. In other words, it, it depends on a global mass, hundreds of millions of consumers who have discretionary income to spend on all that junk that's at, that then they can advertise, you know, on Facebook and, uh, and Google and sell through Amazon. So once there's no more disc discretionary income to blow on, on fr uh, frivolities and there's only essentials, how much profit is there for Facebook and Google in selling toilet paper? Yeah, Not see, very I, much. I, I disagree. And, and, and here's <laughs> why. Um, when the pandemic hit, it was interesting to see who was still advertising, right? Like in the first month of the pandemic, when there was that real kind of shock to the system, when consumption dropped off, when activity dropped off, 
it was you know fascinating to me as a media researcher who was still buying ads the biggest buyer of ads was governments right like governments are are, are always huge users of advertising right after governments it was big business because big business even if they're not selling you something they still want your attention they still want to make sure that their brands and their message are still visible to you so i agree charles that if you take away you know the amount of money that people spend on junk you're hurting the margin of the digital companies absolutely but their technologies of persuasion their infrastructure of surveillance their uh, uh, mechanisms of social containment will be even more valuable the worse the economy gets and the more volatile society becomes and you know just as uh, 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 old every new media eats the media before it right how television the first content on television was just plays on stages Right. They literally set up a television camera in the back of the theater to shoot the stage. Right. The same way that so much of Internet content today is taken from media that came before it. The network state will eat the nation state and in so doing have as its customers state and provincial and municipal governments who will use Facebook as a way to communicate directly to the public. Use Amazon in place of a postal service, in place of a public service delivery. So, it, you know, I agree with you, Charles, that there are finite resources, finite energy, and that the real conflicts will be over those scarce resources and who gets to use those scarce resources. But uh -huh. I think contrary to hurting the digital giants, it will help them because mm. they will be the cartels in charge of attention. They will be the cartels who control the social and identity infrastructure that all of society operates on on top of that. Unless, as per Mark's dream, we gravitate towards open source distributed protocols that allow for these communications to exist without these intermediaries, right? Without these data warehouses that store all this information between us and our governments or us and our whatever, so, I mean, I agree with the broader economic analysis of we are entering very dire and economic times in which polarization is the norm. But I disagree with the political analysis that the people who are powerful today are probably going to get more powerful unless your name is the U.S. government. Right. Unless <laughs> your name is, you know, the Canadian government, because these are the guys who seem asleep at the switch. But if your name's Amazon... If your name's Facebook, if your name's the Chinese Politburo, yeah, I tragically think your future's kind of bright. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you could be pretty bang on there. And um, I mean, I, I totally, to Charles's point, we haven't even begun to feel a contraction in energy inputs anywhere in the world really except if we do it's through some sort of temporary natural disaster but we we haven't really begun to feel like even what 1 million less barrels a day is going to feel like and then if it's 2 million and then it's 3 million and the reality is doesn't matter what your political ideology is 
a society's prosperity is dependent on the per capita energy usage. When the per capita energy usage goes up, a society becomes more, I'll put even prosperous in double quotes, right? You just, you have, you have more of a, that's where wealth effects come from is energy input. And I think we are the elephant in the room that nobody really talks about is we're heading into a world where the energy per capita is going down. I mean, sometimes the conspiratorial minded person in me who, who, who fears that the great reset is just a big bamboozle to enact a, a global dictatorship isn't being impelled by um, the financial system coming unglued, although that's part of it. It's, it's a whole, it's kind of this realization is that, we're going to have a lot less energy to go around and we need everybody in the developed world to ratchet down their energy consumption. And they're not going to do it willingly. They have to be, you know, there has to be a reason for them to do it. Um, that's the conspiracy, you know, that's with the tinfoil hat on the tinfoil hat off is just, that's kind of the reality that we haven't really felt yet, but I think we're on a runway that we're running out of very rapidly and within the next you know, five to 10 years, we're going to, we're going to notice that. And uh, it, it's really going to change a lot of these dynamics or, it, or yeah. not change them. It's going to accelerate them. It's going to, it, it's going to amplify them. The, um, one of my readers turned me on to one of the first um, e ecological systems writer. Uh, I think his name was Howard Odom, O-D-U-M. And he posited that humans are sort of hardwired for um, maximizing consumption, what, what he's called power, you know, and in other words, in terms of energy. So if there's, we'll just strip the tree, right? We find a tree full of, right? We're going to strip it right to the bone and then move on, you know, maximize it, maximize consumption. He said, what we can do is maximize efficiency, but that's going to require like a rational, you know, kind of a plan. But I think that's part of degrowth is there's a lot of behavioral things that can reduce power consumption, right? We all know, but it's just power like water's been cheap, so cheap that it's okay to waste it. So once it becomes costly, then, you know, people will change behaviors and you can change, you can save a lot of electricity just by only using electricity when it's being generated intermittently, right? Like the, the solar panels are firing up. Okay. Then everybody can use a little more power. And then when it, it's at night, you, you cut your thing, uh, power consumption to the bone. But I, you know, I think you're right, um, Mark. And um, I, I want to go back to this idea of, of what kind of change or structural change um, per Jesse's essay, what, what can happen, you know, and, uh, or, or the inevitability of it. And I, part of, I guess, to me, the dividing thing is what strategist Edward Lutok said between force and power. You know, force is when you've got the jackboots on the ground and you've got 100,000 people staring at um, little cameras of, of the streets and, and um, all this enforcement, right, is very expensive. And so if, if you're having uh, less energy then the government share is also going to decline or it's going to destroy its economy if the government is using all the available energy for surveillance and enforcement. So the, the uh, Lutwak's point was power is more like the power to persuade. In other words, if you can convince people to go along with your regulations and your control, 
um, on their own, right? Because it's somehow they've, they decide it benefits them, then the enforcement costs are minimal. And, and of course, that's really what um, Jesse is speaking about here about the network state, is that if, if big tech can persuade us to, to do whatever um, the central authorities want us to do, and, and, and we'll do it of our own volition, then that's a really cheap form of, of power, you know? Um, so then it becomes, well, how addicted are we to social media? Uh, that's that that raises that question in my I, mind. I don't think that's the right frame. I don't think social media is about addiction. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's about persuasion and coercion, right? Addiction implies some kind of pleasure, right? Addiction <laughs> imp implies that we're getting something out of it. And I understand how addiction plays a role. Like I get the way in which this technology is engineered to, you know, hit do use dopamine and. And I understand how attention is used to sort of fuel similar, similar neurochemical impulses. But I don't think that's what we're talking about here when we talk about the power of persuasion of the network state. We're, we're talking about a, a, both an engagement with the collective psyche, an engagement with the collective unconsciousness, and you know the power that the news media used to have to, to, to shape the narrative. Right. To, as Mark has, has legitimately complained to to decide what is in bounds and what's out of bounds when it comes to what is appropriate conversation and, and what is not. You like, talk about it in past tense, though. You don't think well, that's I talk still, about I it think in it's past more tense. forceful today than it is than it ever was. Yeah, I wasn't. That's not what I was referring to. I meant past tense is in encouraging any jerk who's watching us right now to go and watch past episodes by referencing the brilliance you have shared in past episodes. That was the past tense that I was talking about, not the past tense as in it's no longer your concern. Um, but nonetheless, no, no, in, I didn't mean indirectly, it that way, but go on, go on. And indirectly validating your perspective, what I'm suggesting here is that the medium is the message, right? The power that these platforms have is not our addiction to them. The power they have is the public utility they play in our society, yes. right? The social infrastructure that they play in our society. That is not an individual's decision. That's not one person saying, well, I am not going to use Facebook and that makes me a moral person, right? No, like I, for me as a... Uh, you know, like using Facebook is not about individual choice. It's about the power that that company plays in our society. If there was an alternative to Facebook that as a society we could choose that was based on decentralized protocols, of course, yes, I would endorse that. I would use that. But that too is not an individual choice, right? These are social choices. These are collective choices. And that's why I reject the idea that it's about addiction and instead say it's about power. It's about power. It's about infrastructure. That's why Zuckerberg started in Harvard, started in the Ivy Leagues, was backed by InQtel, was backed by Peter Thiel, was backed by the people he was backed. It's a power play. And I think that if we put the, the emphasis on the individual, we put the responsibility on the individual, then we miss the power that is at work and we miss the power that is necessary to oppose it, if not replace it. And I think that's the whole point of why we emphasize protocols and decentralized approaches rather than centralized authoritarian ones. 
That's a very good point. And I, I made some notes about that, that it's a power structure, not just an individual's um, choice or struggling with an addiction. Um, yeah, very well and, said. And Go ahead, Agreed. And, well, sorry, and I didn't mean that, I guess I interrupted, but I didn't mean to, when I talked about the past, I thought you were framing it like the media had this power in the past and doesn't have that power anymore. That's what kind of perked me up there because I see the dynamic. Yeah, but that isn't what you were saying in retrospect because I get more terrified every day at the power of the media that they just pick up a, a, a idea or a meme and they declare it to be true and 90% of the population is going to believe it to be true just because they saw it on CNN and Facebook and Twitter won't let you see anything else, right? So, And I'm the opposite. I am. I feel that the power that the media has always had, to your point, is increasingly laid bare in a very ugly kind of emperor is naked kind of way. And where you suggest that 90% believe it, I disagree. I think that that number is way less and falling. And I, I feel so. that the my point is that the power of the media, as we have historically seen it, is every day more and more irrelevant. What is relevant is the power of the network. And in the power of the network, it really doesn't matter what you believe. You can piss in the wind all you want and your post will be ignored. You'll be shadow banned, right? Like people will just downvote you on Hacker News or Reddit or wherever it is you want to say what you got to say. So, you know, the power of the media, I think we're focusing on precisely because it's in the past, because it is less and less relevant. I understand that it bothers you legitimately, but I think what's more bothersome is the fact that you have the freedom to say that the media is wrong and that amounts to nothing, right? That that doesn't actually change the public narrative. That right. you have the ability to dissent and lots of other people have the ability to say, we object to the media's narrative and their objection amounts to nothing because that is the power of the network, that the network can marginalize you automatically and put you out of bounds so that your voices don't count and you don't even know that it's doing that right you're like how come i'm not getting any likes anymore how come i'm not getting any comments anymore because the whole point of shadow banning is that you don't know that you've been shadow banned that's the 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 hypocrisy of algorithmic justice that not only do you not get a hearing but you don't even know you've been sentenced unless you've actually been executed and knocked off the platform. So, you know, that's where I, I, I push back on the whole power of the media because I think we need to talk about the power of the network to literally disappear people in plain sight, right? To have people who are on the platform thinking that they're participating on the platform when in reality they've been shadow banned so no one can hear or see them and yet they're still talking. Yeah, yeah, it's like the. Oh, go ahead, Mark. One quick thing, Charles. So it's like the media can come up with the most unreal, absurd narratives, and that unto itself wouldn't be as dangerous 
if it weren't for the rails of the narrative machine, which is big tech right now and the networks to say, we are greasing the rails for this narrative and everything else is just getting sinkholed into oblivion. Charles, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to add that somebody um, on another podcast, um, the, the host asked me, um, are, have, have Americans lost the ability or the will to resist tyranny? And I said, well, I think the repression, the tools of repression that Jesse just described are actually a lot more severe and harsh than they were generations ago. It, it, like two generations ago, if you wanted to protest the status quo, you might get thumped you know, by um, the police if you were in a protest that turned violent or that was, you know, you'd get tear gassed or something like that. But outside of a, an actual physical confrontation, you were still fairly safe unless you were um, Daniel Ellsberg's um, psychiatrist or something like that. Um, that there was, of course, there, there was a lot of targeted um, infiltration and so on by the security forces. But now it's like, well, yeah, it's very easy to, to have somebody doxxed or shadow banned. And I've been shadow banned myself. And if I didn't have my own private server that I could look at the records, I wouldn't even know, right? <clears throat> and to Jesse's point, most people don't pay for their own server, so they don't, they don't have any way to, to really track their traffic and where it's coming from or where it's not coming from anymore. Which is, you know, not to get off topic, and feel free to argue against what I'm about to say from any direction you might wish. But this is why I, I find the, the rights or the American conservative objection to social media so absurd that to me it's like the house is on fire and they're yelling about the termites right and i understand that there is a grievance at play which is absolutely legitimate but i feel that the way in which they're articulating that grievance guarantees that it won't be taken seriously and distracts from what the real issue is, which is something that I think is is not partisan at all, which is the power these networks have is unaccountable. It's arbitrary, it's tyrannical. And that if instead of the rights articulating this in defamatory partisan terms, if they were instead to articulate this in terms that Mark, I think you just did. Like, I think the way you articulated it was close, right? And you do it as a libertarian. You do it as somebody who's like, look, I don't really have a side in this. You know, I'm trying to understand the big picture. And so I think that's why you came close when you talked about the rails, right? That here you have these companies who, you know, to, to change your language slightly, who are tipping the scales of justice for the people they like and burying everybody else, right? That if you present it in non-ideological terms, if you present it in a kind of methodology that here's the methods that this network state is using to govern itself, all of a sudden it's not left versus right anymore. Like all of a sudden it's everyone going, oh yeah, like I, that's not fair. I wouldn't want that to happen to me. You know, that that's definitely wrong. And that's why I get so frustrated when the right frames this in the sense of like we're being treated unfairly, but the other side isn't. When instead they should step back and realize everybody's being treated unfairly and everybody's getting screwed by this system. The fact that you might be the one who is benefiting from the scales tipping in your behavior, 
That's only true for one part of the day. The other part of the day, if it was truly transparent, you'd realize that you are getting screwed. That's how the system works. And I think if we were to articulate it that way, instead of putting it in the ideological way that Americans in particular are so prone to do, I think we would collectively be able to recognize that these platforms are, are behaving in ways that are unacceptable to everybody. Well, I took to following the, um, I'm going to get the name wrong, but I think it's the World Socialist News Network or something on Twitter. Uh, and they're on the other side of the spectrum, but they're outside the Overton window on the other side of the spectrum. So I'm watching them complaining about shadow banning and having their YouTube videos taken down and stuff like that. And they're not the only ones. It started, I started noticing it around the, the new year, right? That it's like, you know what? So the, the Overton win window on the right side is like, there is no right side. And then on the left side, it's like, okay, you can go this far, but no further. And um, it, it, it's, you know, take that for what you will. It's, uh, I, I was curious, but then you did fill it out. I was curious, like, what did you mean when you said how the conservatives object to it? But then you, you kind of, you, you, you padded that out a bit, so... Yeah, we didn't really get into um, the monetary inflation uh, topic. We'll have to do that in the next salon. But that's a, that's, a, that's important a too. Yeah, I, we got I the think, supply I think chain. You touched inflation. upon it, Charles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and you touched upon, I, or you alluded to the psychological effect, which I think is a big driver of it. Right. That once yeah. people sort of believe that something is happening, it happens. Right. And I think inflation has that effect. We've talked about in the past the you know, the, the, the spigot of money, and it's not just the closer you are to it, the more you benefit, but Charles, you've talked about people living outside of their means, and I think there is a real temptation, and I see it where I live in terms of farmers who real estate is going up in value, right? Capital is available at really low interest rates, so they've got this very valuable asset all of a sudden that they're sitting on. And so they use it to buy more equipment. They use it to engage in more projects. If it works out, great. But it's very easy for it to not work out. And that's where you start to get the cascading failures. And I think that was, we touched upon that today. Yes, we should definitely touch upon that in the future. But I think it's the psychology of all of it that drives it. And I think that is something that, we sort of touched upon once again. Yeah, well, good. That's an excellent summary. When the bubble's expanding, everybody can feel rich. But as soon as the bubble starts, as soon as the pie contracts, it's uh, knives out. And Should so I mentioned that. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to no, say no. EasyDNS started taking Dogecoin on Friday night. So <laughs> I says that. it all. I know. <laughs> The top tick on Doge. Um, no, but um, in the we, in did, this... we did ring the bell. It's been down <laughs> ever since. Um, we, um, but in the in the spirit of our tradition of introducing a topic that that we leave everyone tantalizingly hanging on, I this, I do want to go back to Jesse's comment from a, a, a couple salons ago about what is real wealth? And so when we talk about inflation and, and assets being worth a lot of money financially, 
But Jesse's point was there's other forms of wealth, and um, we really need to talk about that because you know we're we're wealthy, but it's like in beyond financial measures, which is what the obsession is in our in our society and economy. Livestock, heads mm. of goats, <laughs> ammo, cow. Yeah, it's true. It's true. These are the things people value. And community and skill sets and uh, people caring about you. All, all of those things are forms of wealth that you can't buy. You know, it, if you circulate in the parts of TikTok that I do, it's lumber. It's your lumber supplies. I've are, heard this a number of times rich man. recently. Yeah, that lumber is really going through the roof. Oh, you haven't taken a look at lumber futures? You got to go take. I've been freaking people out. I'm like, go take a look at the lumber futures graph. And translate okay. that into the rest of the economy when you think about how how we use wood for like yeah. not just our houses but lots of stuff, and yeah. and maybe that right there is a good point to end. Yeah. Okay. I guess that the... was uh, yeah. Access of easy. We think it was episode forty-two. The answer to the life, the universe, and everything. Like us on YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes. I'm Mark Jeftovic with Jesse Hirsch and Charles Hugh Smith. We'll see you next time.